started. God, make the words uh, that are spoken tonight by me, by any of us, make them your words to each of us. And make the meditation of our hearts, all that we think about, we ask that it would be pleasing in your sight and that it would make us more like your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So last Saturday, a couple of hours uh, before church started, my older brother called me. And I always take his calls because the man hardly speaks. So I'm just thrilled uh, anytime we can actually share an audible conversation rather than one on text. And we were talking about several other things. Uh, but he always asks me when I'm around him uh, if I finished my sermon. You know, it was Saturday and he was like, you haven't finished your sermon yet. And his voice gets really high when he's uh, teasing. His voice is high all the time, but uh, really high uh, teasing me on the phone. And he was hoping to catch me unprepared, you know. And I told him what I've said many times, that the sermon isn't finished until I preach it. And, uh, and that's more than just a clever comment. Um, I'm not even sure that it's clever. But, <laughs> but in reality, a, a sermon is a communal thing. Um, it's, I, I, I work during the week and before working on the sermon, um, praying about the sermon. So there's God. Uh, there's me, hopefully. God's always there. I am so often there um, in, those, in those conversations. That's one community, but then the greater community is, is all of us. So a sermon really isn't finished until it's preached. And I should maybe adjust that a little bit more to say, perhaps a sermon isn't finished until it's preached, heard, and responded to. Um, tonight, I, I'm not entirely sure if last week's sermon is even finished. Um, maybe it was written, preached, and maybe you heard it, uh, and, and maybe it still could have used some editing, I think. Um, but one great thing occurred, and that is last week's sermon uh, inspired some important conversations this week uh, among some of us, uh, and in, among some of you and me, and I've, I've really appreciated them. And that's the point of what we're doing here. Uh, what I'm doing, what you're doing, is hopefully to encourage a sense of uh, deeper and continuing conversation about what God is doing both in Scripture and in our own lives. The goal of last week's sermon was to illustrate how important it is for us to maintain our connection to the story of Jesus. To be faithful to Jesus isn't to be faithful to him in name only, no matter how confident we are in proclaiming his name. If we aren't living consistently with how he has called us to live, then we're really missing the point. We've got to stay tuned in to Jesus' narrative, uh, what St. Eugene would call the Jesus way. And I have a, a, a couple of quotes from Eugene Peterson that I want to share with you that I, I wish I would have used even last week. Uh, but he quotes John 14, 6, which all of us are probably familiar with, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then St. Eugene continues. He says, the Jesus way, wedded to the Jesus truth, brings about the Jesus life. We can't proclaim the Jesus truth, but then do it any old way we like. Nor can we follow the Jesus way without speaking the Jesus truth. And he goes on, and I've got another quote a little bit longer that I want to read to you. 
And he, go, and, and he addresses this more deeply. He says, my concern is with the responsibility of Christians, every Christian, to develop awareness and facility in the ways of Jesus as we go about our daily lives, following Jesus in home and workplace, neighborhood and congregation, so that our following is consonant with his leading. I want to develop discernments that say an unapologetic no to ways that violate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hope to remember to send this out, put it on Facebook, just, to, just so you guys can chew on this a little bit more. Um, it comes from his book, uh, Eugene Peterson's book, The Jesus Way. I like how he says, my concern is with the responsibility of Christians, every Christian, to develop awareness and facility in the ways of Jesus so that it just kind of becomes natural that we know what to do. So the basketball player or the hockey player, two sports, by the way, look at that. They have this natural sense. They don't think about going this way or that way or whatever the athletes do. It's natural for them. And I hope for us as Christians, this is one of the things that happens when we're so embedded and, and drink so deeply of the story of Jesus. So last week I used the example of storming the Capitol as an example of those who may be disconnected from the story, but who still cling to the images of Jesus. And we saw the Jesus fish, the Christian flag, a person marching in with a Bible and other, other things. And that is the, temp the temptation to turn Jesus into an, into an ideology. And this is a temptation, we're, a temptation we are all susceptible to, to turn Jesus into a mere symbol that underwrites whatever we want to do. And this can lead us to turn our faith into a pretense for violence or disorder or sedition or resentment, judgmentalism, and a sense of superiority. Those who attacked the Capitol on Epiphany, and by the way, I, have, I, I think what they did was wrong, but I'm especially upset that they did it on Epiphany. Um, you know, those of us in the uh, Christian year crowd, we're trying really hard to get people to even know that Epiphany exists, so uh, way to ruin it. Um, anyway, but uh, those who attacked the Capitol on Epiphany and who did so under the banner of Christian faith illustrate a, a genuine temptation, one that I fall prey to just as easily as they did. And if we're people of regular repentance, we recognize that there, but for the grace of God, go we, or I. Fill in the appropriate pronoun there. The remedy to this problem, of course, comes with us staying close to the story of Jesus. Jesus' story includes the overall narrative of Scripture, which is an account of God's work in the world. It includes the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit. It includes Israel. It includes the incarnation of Christ, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, and the church. And it includes all kinds of characters like Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul, Onesimus, just trying to throw you guys off, includes him too. Priscilla, one of my favorites. Um, when we stray from a deep commitment to this, we stray from Christ. And that is 
vitally important for us to grasp a hold of, regardless of the name that we give ourselves. And this is horrifically illustrated in the fact that uh, some branches of, of white supremacy are known as Christian identity groups. They're not Christian, that's not the Christian identity, but that's how the word has been misused. And, and was, in Uganda, the Lord's Army, what a horrific, horrific misuse of, of, of good language. I think when we do this, uh, that is when we're following the narrative of Jesus, we're following the Jesus way, as Eugene Peterson says. We can't have the Jesus life without the Jesus truth, and we can't know the Jesus truth apart from the Jesus way. Uh, it is similar to that long, clunky sentence that we've heard several times at Wheatland over the years. The way God does what God does is as important as what God does. And I should have made a slide of that. Um, but it's equally important for us to keep in mind that the way we do, we as Christian people, as the church, the way the church does what the church does is as important as what the church does. We have to acknowledge that it's not always consistent. That's why we're here every week repenting on our knees. That's why we have to repent every week, every day. But bringing the means and the ends closer and closer together is critical because in God, the means and the ends are always, always aligned. And for us, that's not always the case. So our scripture readings this week come from Mark, uh, and, and the, the story in the, in the Gospel of Mark is about the calling of the disciples, which was part of our uh, Gospel reading for last week. But I was shocked this week <laughs> when I noticed and remembered our Old Testament reading came from Noah. Because for a minute or two, I, wanna, I want us to contrast the Jesus way from the Jonah way, because I think that when we look at the events of what happened this week, and when we say things like, I'm so grateful that we had a peaceful inauguration, something we've never said, never really been worried about, probably in all of our lifetimes. Underneath that, there is a sense that there's somebody, a lot of somebodies perhaps out there who are plotting, and not plotting goodness, but plotting evil. And we're quick to want to attack them. So this is a challenge for us. I think in our enthusiasm for, to, to accomplish what is right versus what is wrong, justice versus injustice, we are tempted to deal out death and judgment. And yes, that is a quote from Gandalf. That's the only one we're getting today. But we are too quick to deal out death and judgment. Here's an example in last week's version of this sermon. I said that the souls of the people who invaded the capital were in danger. I do believe that. But I also believe, uh, I believe that because misunderstanding and misusing the name of Jesus so drastically has a negative impact on that person's relationship to God. It has a negative impact on our souls. A reasonable inference from what I said, however, is that those people are doomed to go to hell. That's not what I meant, but I completely understand why that might have been, a, that have been taken to be the meaning. It's not my place to consign anyone to hell, and I don't want to encourage any more condemnation uh, than is already going around. 
And I think it's critical for us to remind ourselves that when we're stressed or afraid or hurt, condemnation always comes easier than love. So having had some of these good conversations this week, I laughed when I saw this, the story of Jonah. Jonah's the biggest condemnation engineer of the Old Testament. Um, But he's the person that God uses to bring an entire city filled with God's enemies to repentance. So for a couple of minutes, we'll contrast these two, the Jonah way versus the Jesus way. And our reading tonight that y'all heard earlier, it says the word uh, of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It's a second time because there's this whole fish thing. It's not the point of the story, but it's there. Um, It's really great, actually. But God comes, the voice of God comes to him a second time and he says, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh is an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God through the word of Jonah. They proclaimed a fast and everyone great and small put on sackcloth, which is the clothing of repentance. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So again, Jonah's not about the whale. The book of Jonah is about a racist, ethnocentric, religious bigot who God chooses to use to bring his enemies close to him through repentance and forgiveness. Just read the story. I mean... Now, there, there are people who name their children Jonah. Um, the, uh, the Archbishop of the Orthodox Church in America, I think, is named Jonah. I mean, uh, Bishop Jonah. I was going to say saint. I don't think it's time yet. But, um, and the goal here is Jonah is the one who's used by God in spite of Jonah's ugliness, in spite of his... Not only, am I, not only am I not going to do what you say, God, I'm not doing what you want to say because I hate those people you want me to go talk to. And uh, not only do I hate them, but I have a reason to hate them. I hate them so bad that when you make them turn and when they repent, I'm going to be so angry I'm just going to want to die. That's, that's where Jonah's at. So the Jonah story is about a God who is relentlessly expanding the size and the scope of his family. He wants more daughters and more sons, not fewer. He even wants those people who do evil things and those who just do things we don't like. He wants all of them to become a part of his family. And in order for this family to come together, God is going to use people like Jonah, even kicking and screaming, literally, in this case, kicking and screaming. Awareness and respect for difference for the other is really important. And it's been brought to our attention in ways that it hasn't been ever, just in this last year. As Christians, we're compelled to respond with the spirit of Christ and with the love of the other person. Yet we overlook the fact that some of the others that we need to receive and love look an awful lot like us. They may lean a little more left or a little more right, or a lot more left or a lot more right than us. But the resemblance is so, so much the same. Jonah's challenge is how does he open his heart to people that are so unlike him? The Ninevites. Our challenge is similar. 
For, jo- for Jonah, Ninevites were the proverbial other. They were not like him. They looked different, dressed different, ate different foods, and they worshipped different gods. And they lived a long way away. But the New Testament has a Jonah character too, at least one. And that one comes to us in the parable of the prodigal son in the book of Luke. We know that story well. I'm not going to recover it, uh, redo all of it. But the youngest son demands his fortune, or his inheritance rather, and he storms out of the family. And he wastes that inheritance in riotous living. The greatest line in the King James. Um, It includes a lot of stuff. Riotous living. Big brother stays at home. He comes to resent not only his little brother, but he grows to resent the generosity of his father who welcomes this wandering son back. See, the younger son grew a black heart and left for the far country. The older son grew a black heart living right at home. When I remember the folks who stormed the Capitol, I think of them as the Ninevites, and maybe they are. Maybe they're just so, so, so very different. I'm going to be like Jonah towards them sometimes, resentful of God if they change. If that, is that really how I want to be? Of course not. And you all know that when I talk about the people invading the Capitol building, I'm, a, I'm not really talking about them. <laughs> I'm talking about any of them any of us. In reality, I think these folks are more like the younger brother. The younger brother is clearly capable of hearing and receiving the generosity of God the Father. And as the older brother, we must be careful that we don't heap our resentment on them. Instead of effectively condemning them, which is not our place to do, we only heap hot coals on our head. Hopefully you know that. That's a, that's a Bible thing. We cannot ignore bad things. We cannot pretend that they don't happen. This is even more important when they happen in the name of Jesus. But we should all be careful. And when I say we, I mean I should be careful. I should be careful where I allow my heart to go when I look at those that I am tempted to condemn. If we see their beards on fire, we should pour water on our own. We should learn to say what we see, but not without remembering that every person we speak to or speak about is created in the image of God and is someone for whom Christ has given his life. Everyone we come in contact with, everyone that we are tempted to be disgusted by or frustrated by, or just merely irritated by, is someone created in God's image and who has received the same redemption, offer of redemption from Christ. Now I want to shift gears and I want to finish up by sharing a quote with you that I've shared before uh, from Stanley Hartwas. Go back one if you can. Did I go back? Okay, go forward one? There it is. Um, So this is a a, a funny little phrase. The first task of the church is not to make the world the world. Excuse me, start over. This this is why it's so tricky. The first task of the church is not to make the world more just, but to make the world the world. I'm going to say it again. The first task of the church is not to make the world more just, 
but to make the world the world. The first 50 times I heard or read this, I couldn't make sense of it. But I had that hunch that there was something really good in what he's saying here. And what Hauerwas is saying is simply this, or, or maybe he's not simply saying it, but he's saying it. The church needs to be the church. If the church fails to live faithfully to her calling and to the one who called her, then we will do the world absolutely no good, no matter how many great pro projects and programs we create. So I'm going to say that again. If the church fails to live faithfully to her calling and to the one who called her, then we will do the world absolutely no good, no matter how many great projects and programs we create. Do you realize nobody else on this planet is called to the task that the church is called to? And oftentimes as the church, we busy ourselves with all of those other callings and we forget what we're supposed to do. And we never do them as good. We, we never do them quite as good because we're forgetting to do the most important thing. Hopefully the church will impact the world with the justice of God, and it has. But our first task is not to create justice where there is none. It is to be people who gather and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Hopefully the church will heal relationships among people, and the church has, and the church will continue to do that. But that's not really our first task either. Our first task is to worship well, to worship regularly, to worship faithfully. Our first task is to enter the Jesus way by the Jesus truth for the sake of the Jesus life. And it's all in there together. But it seems like we remember all of the other things that need to be done. It's like Tom's shoes. I don't have this written down, so this might crash horribly. But you remember Tom's? They were like giving shoes out all around the planet. And, um, and then... Uh, after a few years, which is great, way to go. Um, but then they discovered they're kind of undermining uh, the ability of people overseas to make shoes or something like along those lines. And the bottom line is that they wanted to sell shoes. They're a shoe company. They need to sell shoes. I think sometimes the church does the same thing. Let's give a bunch of shoes away, so to speak. But may it be an overflow of what's happening in these moments of worship May it be an overflow of what happens every day as we once again re-immerse ourselves into the story of Jesus. By embracing first things first, we will learn to say God's name well in a world that doesn't even know the meaning of the word Jesus. By embracing first things first, we will learn to say God's name. And we'll say God's name in what we say, in what we symbolize, and in what we do. We'll say it well in a world that doesn't know the meaning. When we worship well, we are able to stay true to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we can avoid falling for those ideologies, whether they're on the right or the left, or any other spatial designation that we use. We avoid using Jesus as a banner, and instead we follow him as Lord. So, I've said it before, we don't have the American flag or the Christian flag, 
in this room. We removed them when we first started renting the space and everybody here at Sunnyside uh, was fine with that. I want to say it today because of Inauguration Day this week. I'm grateful for the peaceful transition of power. I'm also grateful for press conferences, but that's neither here nor there. But what happened on Wednesday, as good as it might have been, is not the kingdom of God. It's not. And, and the best illustration of that was the beautiful benediction offered by the, by the minister, by the preacher. It was amazing. When he, and then he concluded, in the name of our collective faith. And I'm like, what on earth is that? I mean, <laughs> would, it would have been great if you just said amen. Um, you don't have to, I mean, in your attempts to be unspecific, he was very specific. And I think that's unfortunate. So that's why we don't have flags. I've, I've, I've beat that drum so many times, but I just want to remind us, right or left, it's not the way. Christ is the way. And unless we stay immersed in his story, we'll lose that. The last quote I'll share with you tonight, with this I'll close tonight, and this was at the end of last week's sermon too. And it comes from Stanley Harawas, so it's a little bit verbose, but it's so rich, I need to share it again. Only a community that recognizes the worship of God as its first task can form genuine virtues and hence form people capable of genuine service to the common good of the societies they inhabit. Only a community that recognizes the worship of God as its first task can form genuine virtues and form people capable of genuine service to the common good of the societies they inhabit. I concluded last week by saying, if you want to change the world, show up here in worship or show up somewhere in worship. <laughs> but show up uh, in worship and all of the variety of things that we do, not just in this room, but throughout the week, that worship is going to keep us on the right track and keep us embedded in the story of Jesus. So it's more appropriate than ever that we pray the prayer of confession now.